So we're still here with Emma talking about the things that are important to us when it comes to realizing how adoption impacts our lives and our identities and, you know, what to do with that. So one topic of conversation that I think could intrigue other people is how adoption affects our dating lives and our romantic relationships as adults. And so Emma, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think specifically having the story of being adopted from China because of the one-child policy, I think it has made me a sensitive person, I guess, first and foremost. And when it comes to romantic relationships, first of all, let me say, I'm super grateful for my boyfriend and I love him. And he has been so supportive as we've been getting to know each other and me sharing my story. It's been so wonderful and relieving and refreshing to know that he's so empathetic and has such this capacity to love and accept me as I am, even when I don't. Like when I'm still struggling with how I look and when I feel like I'm trying to live up to double standards and he just accepts me as I am, I'm so grateful for him. Yeah, and that's I think what everyone looks for in a relationship, someone who will accept you for the good, the bad, the ugly. I am also thankful in that regard to have a partner that loves me for who I am and all the complicated facets and the messiness that it often comes to the surface, which sometimes I feel guilty about. However, he's never made me feel guilty about anything when it comes to the parts of my story. And I think he sees the big picture things while I micromanage and magnify the things that I'm not satisfied with myself about. And I think having him gives me a lot bigger perspective that I probably really needed. (laughs) And, you know, we've been together for almost four years. And even in that regard, we've grown as a person, we've grown as people together. And I think he's been a really key part in my shifting view of myself and who I am as a person and that I'm a decent person. (laughs) Allie, you're a great person. Right. See, it's still hard, <laughs> but getting closer to to that acceptance. I know when I was on the dating apps, I think I was encountering a lot of men who were only interested in me because I was Asian and they wanted an Asian girlfriend, which kind of speaks to the fetishization of Asian women and I guess that yellow fever concept Ugh. that, you know, is probably not on the radar for most people. But was definitely on my radar at least and getting the vibe of like is he interested in me because I'm a cool person in general or is it just because of like the way I look and specifically because I'm Asian and maybe he's expecting me to be like submissive or I don't know the not so great stereotypes when it comes to Asian women that honestly get us hurt in a lot of instances so that was always somewhat of an added fear I guess going into the dating world and I'm like a terribly picky person for <laughs> someone who like doesn't really like herself. But I think deep down, I'm like, I have standards, boys. And I didn't really think anyone would ever meet those standards. Honestly, didn't really picture a life with a partner. But then... But then some charming, charismatic man walked into my life and I walked right past him. <laughs> and angrily said my Starbucks order and sat down. Because I was really done <laughs> with dating in general. And he was the last ditch effort. Otherwise, I was going to go live in a cave with goats in Iceland (laughs) and never talk to a man ever again. (laughs) Obviously, my coping skills are great. But yeah, have you ever encountered people like that? Like on your time on the dating apps or just in life? Luckily, not on the dating apps, but there have been times in person 
And I mean, hey, I can never prove it, of course, but there have been times when I have noticed men staring at me and it seems kind of off. It seems kind of creepy. So not on the dating apps, but it's happened in person, I would say. Of course, again, I can't prove that obviously, but, but it felt that way. I'm really grateful to my mom because she always wanted me to be aware that the Asian fetish does exist. And she wanted me to be cautious because of it. And you're right. I still, when I did approach dating, I did always have that in the back of my head as part of the boxes to tick off for what I wanted and what I was looking for. I had to make sure that I was going to find someone that liked me and not just how I looked and what they associated with my looks. And right. And I think when I went on dates with people and they saw this Asian person on the apps, and I think when I was on the apps, like, four or five years ago. It wasn't as intricate as they are now. There's no voice recordings you could leave. It was just pictures, maybe a question here or there. Swipe left or right. And all the people that I've gone on dates with, I like to picture it as a pleasant surprise of who showed up in their minds. Because I definitely, I don't think I was what they were expecting. And so those never panned out and that's completely fine. And I think you're right. You can tell when someone's staring at you either in like admirable way versus creepy way, mm -hmm. like thinking. It felt icky. God knows what about me as a person. And I think it's just... Well, I think that's the whole thing. I think when that kind of stare happens, you can tell they're not thinking of you as a person. Ooh, fair. And the objectification of women is just a huge issue in general, but the added layer of us being Asian and then also forgetting that I look like this. Yeah. <laughs> just eye-opening a lot and I wish it wasn't like that because I think you know if I do have biological children one day I'm hope and pray that they look somewhat like me <laughs> and if they don't they're going back no I'm kidding <laughs> they're not and so they will most likely be biracial and if they do favor me in appearance they're gonna have to navigate life like, as a biracial person and having Asian features that, you know, aren't always associated with kindness. Because I think, you know, in the last year or so with the pandemic, the Asian hate has kind of been more in the spotlight than before. And I think it's brought the attention to my mind, especially, and worrying about the child that I don't have yet. But also trying to figure out, like, how would I predict them? How do we have these conversations about race? Things like that. I think, honestly, that is what motivates me a lot to work on myself and to figure out these complicated things. So I can help a future child that I don't have do that as well. Because fingers crossed, they look, at least they have the hair or something. <laughs> something. Which is interesting because I haven't really ever wanted kids. So it's interesting my motivation draws from kids that I wasn't planning to have. <laughs> That's something that I've thought about too. So I know I want kids and what I also try to think about is how am I going to navigate having those conversations with them because their journey is going to be different from what my journey was. It's going to be new territory. I'm not biracial. <laughs> sometimes I wish I was because sometimes I feel like it would be a better reflection of who I am, but I'm not. And I also want to make sure that if I have biological children, I want them to know that they are beautiful. I don't want them to go through 
what I've gone through thinking that they're not beautiful when they are. I hope that they don't have shame because that's, again, I know we've been talking about shame. And when I look in the mirror, I am sometimes ashamed. I'm ashamed that I'm not phrasing this right, but that I'm ugly when I'm not, even though it feels that way. I've thought in the past, oh, if I end up having biological children with someone who is not Chinese ethnically, I don't want my features to be dominant. I've thought that in the past. I didn't want my features to mar my future husbands, but that's not right. Yeah, I think having that motivation to want to do better. And you're like you said, though, it's going to be entirely new territory for them if they they are biracial. And I guess even more far removed from Chinese culture, Chinese like experience, especially if we stay in Kentucky. Oh my goodness. But yeah, I want them to be, but still proud of that part of them. I want them to feel beautiful. And that requires me to be proud of that part of me. Yeah. Because they're definitely going to pick up on whether I like myself or not. (laughs) Yeah, kids can do that. They sure can. So it's not only a responsibility to myself and trying to find that peace, like I've been talking about, but also a responsibility for kids in the future that I do better so that they can be better. Yeah, it's, it's with anything healthy. You have to fill your bucket first. Otherwise, you won't be able to help others. Right. It's something I voice in therapy a lot to clients. Again, do as I say, not as I do. Is part of you like ever wanted to like adopt kids? I'm always open to adoption. Yeah, because I think about it and you know, I know you, I know me, I know my sister, and I know plenty of other adoptees and I call them success stories. We love success stories. We're all going through this struggle, but we are also all killing it at life. It's very true, very true. I don't think I ever pictured myself adopting a kid, even though I know that the need is so much there. What I think about when I, if I do have kids, if I do have a biological child, it'll be like first blood relative I have that I created, which is cool to me. (laughs) Um, I realize that it's probably not the biggest deal to other people, but for me, it'd be a big deal. Oh yeah. I mean, I still, I'll look at what I call normal family sometimes. And I'll be like, oh my gosh, you all look alike. If I have a biological kid one day and it looks like me, that is new territory for me. Right? Exactly. Yeah. My boyfriend's family, you can see where the traits come from and like who has them, who has what features. I'm like, wow, genetics are weird. Sometimes (laughs) I just look at them in shock almost. How do you all have the same ears? (laughs) It's amazing. Like, it's like, I can tell that you're related. Right. What a concept. Can you tell that I'm related to my dad? No. <laughs> Although I have had an instance where someone just assumed my dad was my biological dad because he also had black hair. Ah. And I was like, okay, that's a new one, but okay. We'll take it. We'll take it. Even though he's very much Italian. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I just think it'd be cool to have that biological relative. Yeah. Yeah. I always think it's kind of really cool when I see a family that also has an adoptee and I can tell that they're all together because, you know, I come from that experience. Mm -hmm. So seeing both kinds of families, I'm still in shock and in awe in a good way of both. And I think when my parents like decided to adopt from China, they were older. My dad already had kids. My mother didn't, but they 
went in knowing that their family that they were going to create was going to be not the typical nuclear family. And let me tell you, it is definitely not. <laughs> it gets really complicated. And I don't think I fully understood it until I was an adult. I'm like, who was related to who? Slash, how do we know this person? Slash, who is Rick? And how does he come <laughs> to Christmas every year? He's literally not related to any of us, but here we are. Sorry, Rick. <laughs> but yeah, I think those unique features that I get to participate in slash have, I think I lean towards that, hey, I really like and the uniqueness and I couldn't imagine myself without it as a thing. So it's March Madness time right now. I love March Madness and just sports in general, thanks to my mom and grandma. It's not really something that you would expect from me, I guess. <laughs> and yeah, I might have cried when the Bengals went to the Super Bowl, but it's fine. But that's something that family and I bond over a lot. I'd go home and watch the games with them, scream at the TV. Not obscenities, but, you know, just loudness. And that's something I couldn't imagine, like, family without. And I know that's not the case in, like, everyone's family, but I really like that it's mine. Absolutely. Even though the families that adopt, they look atypical, we all still do those fun family things that bring us together. Right, right. And it's not like, I think at some point I was expecting to be totally different from my mom and dad. And I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like a pretty cool combination of both of their personalities together. Some days good, some days bad. However, I think in general, it's a good thing. And again, this gives me a unique perspective that not a lot of people have. Yeah. I think with my family, I, I always say I am half my mom, half my dad, and half my sister. And I know those numbers don't add up. But what I mean by that is that they just, they're so much a part of me. They, we're all really close. And I guess it's sort of like, because I feel like when you're adopted, you start with your identity at zero. It's, it's more like, a, all right, you're here now. You're suddenly not in that first country that you were in. You're here now. This is your mom now. This is your dad now. This is your sister now. And you suddenly have, you suddenly went from having zero givens to all these different givens that you don't look like. But that's still really cool because because of that, that's why I say I'm half my mom, half my dad, half my sister. Suddenly you have that. Right. And you know, not that typical quote-unquote family experience, but still valid, no less than the typical quote-unquote family experience. Yeah, I remember my parents telling me, like, so I was adopted at like 18 months old, so I don't know much about kids, but I think they can walk at that point and slightly talk. Anyway, <laughs> got a lot to learn before I, if I do have kids. So yeah, I was you know, had a conscience by then. I kind of was aware of surroundings, who was in my circle or whatever. And then it completely changed and these white strangers that were hairy came up <laughs> and took me away. And I was like, oh, those are your new givens. Yeah. <laughs> and my parents described it as like a very, very uh, chaotic time when I first got with them because understandably, I was terrified, absolutely terrified of these two strangers who I can't understand. <laughs> And they can't understand me. And I think at one point my mother was like, did we do the wrong thing? 
she's so miserable. But I think maybe a lot of parents go through that feeling of like, eh, but we all worked out. <laughs> but yeah, and they flew back to Kentucky. Suddenly I have parents, two siblings, a dog. I'd never seen a dog before. A house. A house. <laughs> a yard. Grandparents. Um, and all this, all this stuff. Yeah, I was terrified of that dog for a really <laughs> long time. But eventually he became my best friend. Oh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think just shows how quick your life can change in an instant. Yeah, and as you're describing all of that, I'm noticing something that I'm feeling listening to you, and there is still that feeling of, I'm not worthy. Like, listening to, a, you know, kind of the list of all the things that you're suddenly given and suddenly you have, and it's, it's this feeling of, like, I don't deserve this. Because part of it is sort of, like, well, it's not really mine. Even I, I, it's not being taken. You're not taking it from someone else, right? But, but just hearing you say those privileges, there's still part of me that feels small inside. Right. And I think feeling grateful is definitely something that I have for my experience, my family, all these privileges that I just came about and wasn't born into. Yeah, I think that's part of the feeling. It's like, I didn't do anything to deserve this. Hmm. Right. And I think trying to keep up that gratefulness and having gratitude for like what I do have now, I think kind of canceled out the things and made me feel more guilty about feeling guilty to begin with. Mm -hmm. Because since I'm adopted, since I was given everything for no reason, per se, like I shouldn't have negative feelings about any of this right because how could you or why would you because I have a honestly a great life there's that shouldn't you be happy what do you mean you're feeling this way I think that's where a lot of the shame aspect comes for adoptees that you know we're given this narrative of gratitude and gratefulness and kind of having this point reinforced that you didn't deserve any of this this was a gift you should be grateful type of thing. They saved you, whatever. And yeah, it doesn't allow for space for like any negativity or not even negativity, but just even like complicated emotions that are still valid and we have them for a reason. So yeah, kind of opening up that door when we're talking about adoption and not coming to terms with this part of identity meant opening that door of, oh, I shouldn't be feeling this way. Why am I feeling this way? Help. But also the world being like, you Shut up. <laughs> Stop talking. <laughs> Shut up and be happy. Right. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, I can be grateful and sad about being adopted and having everything ripped away from me at two years old. Because I would say no one deserves that either. And even though we were too young to remember it, our bodies still remember the trauma of being taken from everything we've ever known. I don't know about everybody, but also, I mean, not just taken, I guess. I'm going to argue that it sounds like I was deprived. When my parents got me, I was hungry. Again, all the kids in my orphanage, I think we were all malnourished. When my parents came and got me from China, my mom packed a week's worth of formula. And then she had to ask other parents that were on the adoption trip for extra formula because I went mm. through it all. I was hungry. I think I was like, again, don't know much about kids. But I was eating like solid food. Ah. And so my parents got me also hungry. Also had like 
an infected bug bite. I think I still have a scar from. And they were like, you ate until you threw up. <laughs> and then you ate some more. <laughs> and I was like, huh, that seems unhealthy. It just affects us in different ways. I think even to this day, I think I had a lot of synapses in my brain that I needed to build. Because when I was in the orphanage, I don't think that those were being built. So I was actually a little slower in my development. I've seen my home videos and I was definitely slower. Mm-hmm. And my mom really had to work with me. She specialized in childhood development. So she really worked with me to teach me how to communicate and how to speak. You need to raise your voice at the end of a sentence if you mean to ask a question. Mm-hmm. You know, you mm-hmm. need to ask others how their day is and how they are. Yeah. And one key thing for child development and infancy to like two years old is physical touch from a caregiver that you trust and eye contact from a caregiver that you trust constantly or at least regularly. And I'm going to guess that neither of us had that because I'm pretty sure my orphanage is like, you know, multiple kids, probably like 20 or 30 and then two or three caregivers. And I'm sure that they, you know, they tried their hardest, but that's not enough for a healthy developing child. And we've come to learn that now just through like studies and stuff like that. Yeah. And it puts things into perspective. I think being malnourished and not nutritionally sufficient, I still have a very interesting relationship with food. And I was like, that's not connected to adoption. And then I started to think about it. I was like, yes, it is. Oh gosh. Back to therapy, I go. So, do you mind sharing what it is? I'm very possessive about food and I worry a lot about food, even though I've had enough food and more all my entire life after the adoption. And I also like pick apart my food and break it up in just like small pieces and just very odd behaviors that I didn't realize were there until other people pointed out to me. And they're like, yeah, my childhood friends are like, yeah, you've always done that. I was like, what? Excuse me. But I think when I heard about it, I actually thought it made sense because if you pick apart your food, you suddenly have more food, you have more pieces. And I think it's that fear of not having enough that is from all the way back when. Yep. So we can't discredit how much adoption impacts a lot of little things that we never could have imagined. Thanks for joining Emma and I on our conversation about the international adoptee experience. We just want to showcase that there are a variety of opinions and feelings about this experience, and there is not a quote-unquote wrong way to feel about this. Whatever you're feeling in the moment is completely valid, and it's true to you, so therefore it's real and it needs to be acknowledged. So I hope that this space can be that for everyone that's listening, but especially those who might have felt that they haven't had a space before. So we'll see you next time.